Hello, people. This is the Extra Spicy Podcast. I'm Justin Phillips. And I'm Solejo. For the third year in a row, wildfires have once again ravaged California's wine country, burning down homes, wineries, restaurants, and everything else in their path. One loss in particular has especially rattled the Bay Area's restaurant industry. The restaurant at Meadowood, located in Napa Valley's St. Helena, this really celebrated place, was destroyed on September 28th by the massive glass fire, which burned roughly 67,000 acres in Sonoma and Napa counties. We're talking about this restaurant because it had such an outsized impact on the restaurant scene. In a region where there are so many Michelin-starred restaurants, the restaurant at Meadowood, which had three of those stars, was a model for a generation of restaurateurs and chefs who craved a similar place of their own to make artful food, capital A, artful food. And you might be wondering why we are talking about a place where, you know, the typical dinner was $360 per person on this podcast because, you know, we don't typically talk about fine dining, but I would argue that this place was so important for the scene. So many really interesting and compelling chefs and food workers came out of that space to make their own places and to work at some of the other most celebrated restaurants in the Bay Area. For a lot of people, it was a restaurant first and foremost, but it was also a rare symbol of fine dining that ostensibly was done right. So we're talking about this place in past tense, what it was, what it represented, what people thought about it. But it's worth pointing out that the owners of the Meadowood Napa Valley property have promised to rebuild that location. So it can exist in some capacity in the future. But news of the destruction itself has former employees and fine dining chefs in the region and just anybody that pays attention to the food scene kind of exploring a range of emotions regarding the uh, the restaurant's lasting legacy. Right. They weren't all positive emotions. So on this episode, we look into what it took for the restaurant at Meadowood to earn its place as an international fine dining destination. And, you know, for some chefs striving for Michelin stars, a highly disciplined, intense work environment is necessary for success. You hear a lot about the brigade system. You hear a lot about the regimentation of the kitchen and sometimes really intense, contentious work relationships between chefs and their staff. And some people like that. In the case of the restaurant at Meadowood... It seems like a really typical example of this kind of environment. And after it burned down in the glass fire, a lot of people chimed in with remembrances and fond memories, while others have spoken out about executive chef Christopher Costo's allegedly abusive workplace culture. I had a chance to go to the restaurant at Meadowood last year, and it was really fascinating. At first, I was really skeptical about California cuisine, which is, you know, the, the sort of nebulous philosophy of cooking that is very much about seasonality, about really good sourcing and good shopping and facilitating great relationships with ranchers and purveyors and fishermen and all that, which, you know, it seemed to me like a very generic like farm to table. We all know this, right? Anyone who lives in a city or even in the country knows uh, what farm to table cuisine is. But at the restaurant at Meadowood, it was a kind of restaurant where before you would eat, chefs would come out of the kitchen holding boxes of produce that they grew in the the restaurant's like specialty garden, you know, and they would walk you through like, these are the vegetables we're going to use. These are the ones that you're going to eat. It's going to be great. And, you know, it could be really gimmicky in some context, but in that context, it just made sense. It felt really sincere and really great. I think it's safe to say that it is 
and it has been my favorite restaurant experience since becoming the critic at the Chronicle. One of my favorite bites that I had at the restaurant at Meadowood was a kiwi, like a whole kiwi. And it was cured a lot like the way people in Japan and Korea cure persimmons, kind of uh, aged in air and allowed to get really soft on the inside. Um, It was amazing. It was such a great bite of food, but it was literally just a kiwi. But the level of technique applied to it was so, I don't know, I keep using the word sincere, but that's how it felt to me. And, you know, there are so few moments of surprise, like genuine surprise when you're a critic, when you eat out all the time. And that was one of them for me. So when we think about the restaurant at Meadowood's legacy, it's interesting to see what it actually means to have three Michelin stars. To find out, we spoke with Tracy Desjardins, a prominent San Francisco fine dining chef, to give us some insights into how the Michelin Guide awards its stars. My understanding of one star was that it was a much more eclectic mix of restaurants. It could be, you know, any variety of different ethnic restaurants. The decor could be um, anything from a casual cafe to a bistro to even, you know, very fine dining. When you got into the two-star environment, that was definitely shooting for the third star. But maybe there was something that wasn't quite to the consistency of the three stars. Sometimes it was a financial investment. Sometimes it was the decor in the dining room or the quality of the cutlery, the the, the plates, the the glassware, um, the the beauty of the kitchen. All of those elements had to fall into sync to hit that three-star level. And then the three-star level really was that consistency consistency of all of those different elements coming together for a perfect superlative experience. After earning two Michelin stars three years in a row, the restaurant at Meadowood was like right on the cusp and it earned its third star in 2011. You know, it's it's a big deal. This has been Nierenhausen, a former sous chef at the restaurant. Especially when, because I was there when we got our third star. And so just having that sense of monumental achievement, not just for Christopher and, you know, the owners of the property, but, you know, the fact that it was truly an all-encompassing, like every single staff member felt that sense of accomplishment. And, you know, I remember with my roommate at the time, you know, we didn't even sleep at all the night before the Michelin guy was released because we were, we were really keeping our fingers crossed that this year might be the year. And, you know, waking up every like couple hours and refreshing the phone, refreshing the phone, refreshing the phone, and finally, like, you know, it must have been like five or six in the morning. It's like you just hear this cry go up in the house and every, you know, we run to work and we're all waiting on the back deck and we're all jumping and shouting and hollering. And it was just, you know, it, it didn't matter what status you were, you know, it was such a team accomplishment. When I started there in 2011, it was just six months after they had gotten their third star. And that's really what drew me over there was to work at that next level. And here we have Alexis Iconis, who was hired as a food runner at Meadowood while she studied and prepared to become a sommelier. She was previously working at a two-star restaurant. The the leap from two-star to three-star, at least going from where I worked to Meadowood, was such a large jump. It was a learning curve for me. First of all, you start the front of the house started two hours earlier so that we could iron and steam every single tablecloth, um, make sh- making sure everything was perfect. Um, it, it's the little things that made the difference in the dining experience, at least from me being in the front of the house. Of course, the food is a whole nother element, um, but it, it was probably several hundred very, very small details all added up to make that next level of dining. 
the first thing I noticed was that at Meadowood in the dining room, there was no side stations in every other restaurant. I've worked in nine other restaurants. You know, you usually have the side station with the glasses and the silverware and you hear the opening of the drawers. You hear, you see maybe the point of sale register. All of that was hidden. It was all, um, you know, behind a wall. And when you're in the dining room, you don't hear any sort of aspect of service. It's all about the guests, the food, and uh, what's happening in front of you. Certainly, once you get that third star, there's a lot more money that comes in from just random places. Just, you know, want to, you know, you're able to definitely charge different prices. And, you know, it's, it's definitely a status elevation. We are constantly jet setting as a team, trying to promote what we did. Um, you know, the constant changing of the, of the menu. You know, I think that's one of the great things, obviously, of, you know, not only in California, but Napa as well is, you know, really having a lot of those ingredients at your disposal. And I think even more so in a, in a rural environment like Napa is to where you can really integrate yourself into nature, you know, whether it's through mossy logs or river rocks, you know, there's a lot of tie into that sense of place versus just, you know, bricks and, and sidewalks. I mean, I know Michelin looks for, you know, one of their biggest things is consistency and being able to do that whilst at the same time changing that menu and keeping it engaging and still revolving around that same narrative, I think is, is very key. Most three-star restaurants, I'd say all of them are using the most luxury ingredients available, flown in from all over the world. You have those resources. And something that Chef did very differently from the get-go was maybe not using the most luxury ingredient, but using something that was lesser known, a lesser known protein, or something that it was very local to the area. He used manzanita bark for different things, madrone, spice bush. These are all things that grow around the property of Meadowood that he would use in any number of different ways that you wouldn't think as an ingredient, acorns, things like that. Uh, really pushing the limits on what you think is an ingredient, making it into something truly special. He was able to to create that restaurant in the Napa Valley, as Thomas did before him, and um, and and bring that three star experience to the United States, and and the precision and all of the things, the the dining room and the commitment to excellence and the the kitchen and all of those things that that have to be there uh, to achieve the status of a three star restaurant. I think it's accurate to compare a three Michelin starred restaurant to, let's say, a masterpiece, right? Let's say you're going to the Louvre to look at Mona Lisa by Leonardo da Vinci. And the point is that painting is always going to be the same. You're there to witness something masterful and allegedly perfect. And if there's something wrong with the experience, right, if there is a tear in the painting or something looks off, it feels wrong like mm. why are you here you invested all this time and energy to see something sublime and perfect ostensibly and that is sort of the point of these restaurants they are places where artful things happen at least that's the expectation and everything has to be pristine and perfect and well oiled for anything to go wrong is a almost a violation of of the guarantee of the three Michelin stars. From a financial side of it, I know that uh, you know writing about these awards for so long, 
part of the reason why they're so important to these restaurants is because they can mean an uptick in sales. You know, they can have international travelers that come that want to eat there and you can see revenue rise by like 25%. And that in itself can, you know, help a brand expand if they want to or open new projects. If you take Cezanne, for example, their Michelin stars led their chef to being able to open Angler and other projects across the country. Like, it's all connected. And, you know, from a simply financial side of it, the stars are important. Right. So losing a star means so much in terms of impact, material impact. It could mean the difference between having a year where you're in the black versus a year when you're in the red. Right. So it adds to the stress and the pressure to lose something because someone messed up or the Michelin inspector had a bad night. I mean, that means so much. And I think that's what adds to sometimes toxic work environments, which you'll hear about next. I mean, most restaurants, uh, you know, I've, I've worked in nine other restaurants besides Meadowood, casual, one other Michelin star restaurant. And, you know, there's camaraderie, you know, people are goofing around, you know, people are coming in with, you know, half their uniform on, or maybe they're hungover. You know, it's a lot of restaurants are like that. And you're just doing a job, you're punching in, punching out. But once you get to the fine dining level, these are all career people. And so everybody's taking this very seriously, whether you're in the kitchen, whether you're the ladies who are doing the linens and the laundry, or you're in the front of the house. I remember walking in my first day and the CIA interns were just so militant about what needed to be done and, you know, what herbs needed to be cleaned. And I was like, holy crap, like, this is what they have the interns doing. Like, I can't even imagine what it's like to work a station at this place. It was exactly what I wanted. You know, I I can totally see for some people, you know, they're maybe not ready for that. Um, You know, I think for me personally, I was looking for that next change in intensity. You know, I wanted to see it to another level. And it, w- it was everything I, I had wanted it to be. This is our chosen career. And so everybody studied outside of work um, for hours, you know, whether it's studying the menu before you come into work, um, studying wine, of course. Uh, the SOM team, we studied wine for 10, 15, 20 hours a week outside of work. Um, and so you're surrounded by these people that, this is not just a job between jobs. This is what we've chosen to do. People weren't there to hang out. People weren't there to play around. People were there to learn, to get better, and to really come together and make this unbelievable experience and product. I was there for eight weeks, and I, after a certain point, I was just like, fuck this. this That's Ricky like, Oddbird. He worked at Meadowood as a fish cook in 2010, just before um, the restaurant gained its third star. Work. The environment there was, yeah, just really, really, really abusive. You know, people getting like grabbed by their collar of their chef coat and pushed up against the wall, being screamed at, like, you know, people being sabotaged and then berated throughout the rest of the night for it. I've worked in Michelin star restaurants before and I've been exposed to that but not to that degree. We asked Ricky what experience stood out for him uh, in a short time at Meadowood. Chris Costow gave me a recipe for something after he made it himself. And 
it didn't work and he you know was visibly upset about the fact that it didn't work it was a bone marrow gelée that um you know when you make a gelée with something that's really high in fat that's um especially beef fat because it solidifies it solidifies pretty much rock hard and he wanted some fillet, some flexibility with it texturally he wanted it to be to have like a gelatinous texture so in order to do that you need to use an emulsified fat which would be cream and gelatin but he overcomplicated the recipe and it was there was like maltodextrin in it to absorb the fat there was agar in it to make it solid there was like ultra text to thicken it like just all of this stuff that like no matter what no matter who made it it wasn't going to work it was a bad recipe and no one i honestly don't even think that dish ever i don't think that dish ever was the way that it was meant to be because that recipe was just a bad recipe and so the first day he made it and it was supposed to be kind of like a thin sheet that was going to go over this i think it was sturgeon so you know you would pour it out onto a flat tray but you have to spray the tray with vegetable spray you know otherwise it's going to stick and so he gave me this you know this finished product that was stuck to a tray that like was not going to come up in nice sheets and no matter what you did to it it was going to tear because of the texture of it and it was going to crack and break and he just left me with that and yelled at me the entire night every time he got a piece that he wasn't happy with. I remember one of the one of the worst things was really just like if the day, if that day was your day, it was going to be an all-day experience of just being completely belittled with everything you did. And there was never a moment of like, "Hey, you did a really good job tonight." Like there was no moments of encouragement and there was no sense of this is actually going to help you out it was more of like you're a piece of shit you're an idiot like why the fuck did you wake up this morning you're listening to the extra spicy podcast we'll be right back after the break you can support this podcast and the newsroom that creates it by subscribing to the san francisco chronicle at sfchronicle.com/pod Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. I'm Suleho, and we're back with Ricky Odbert, a former employee at the restaurant at Meadowood. There's a lot of pressure when you're cooking at that level. You know, there's you only have one opportunity to create that experience and to replicate it for every single person every single day. So I totally understand that. I'm in a position right now um, owning a restaurant where I deal with that. But it wasn't that. It was more of a like constant berating and belittling and making an example of people just to continue this kind of air of fear. I feel like at this time there isn't enough labor laws that are sufficient to protect staff against verbal and psychological abuse, which is still incredibly traumatic. 
Sherman Chan worked as a line cook at Meadow in 2012. She had already worked in fine dining restaurants for four years before that. Here's what she had to say about working under executive chef Christopher Costile. I feel like um, chef was always, for lack of a better term, a little nosy into our personal life. Um, He would always try to figure out what we would do um, outside of work, just to kind of, I thought was just kind of see how we were overall as a person. But I felt like a lot of the times that information was used against us. Personal experience was um, chef has asked me to go in the walk-in very casually. I thought it was simply to look at produce or vegetables or something. And he, the moment that walk-in door closed, he screamed at me about something I did outside of work which was getting drinks at a local bar in my own personal time. And I was so taken aback. I was, because it was not what I expected, because it was so uncalled for that I was completely shocked and I burst out crying the second he left the walk-in. And I like to think I'm a pretty strong woman, pretty strong personality, um, but when somebody screams, somebody you admire, somebody you look up to as a mentor screams at you for something that was not work-related, it really shakes you to your soul. There's also that aspect of breaking somebody down to build them up, but I feel like that's, if you're doing it in a demeaning way, if you're doing it in a way that is not constructive, that is not something that I endorse at all. Sherman Chan quit her job after being there for about eight months. I mean, like Meadowood is just one of so many examples of this. Bennu is like that. Birdsong is like that. The rest, uh, you know, the French Laundry is like that. Like all of these two and three Michelin star restaurants, that's how they are run, which sucks because, you know, I own a restaurant and I'm trying to get a Michelin star and I don't treat my staff like that. And I don't feel like I ever have to. But I also know that a lot of people had the same experience as me, but it didn't affect them in this way. I mean, people join the military for a reason, right? And they enjoy that. Like, it's so weird to me. Like, I don't cook because I like being yelled at, but some people really, I mean, I remember people like just getting yelled at and just like getting fired up about it. And it like really shifted the way that they acted during that moment. And they like rose to it and I would just I would just crumble and a lot of people will and I think that there's a lot of people that are like get psyched on getting yelled at because they feel like they're growing or they feel like they're being a part of something it's such a weird thing I I was ready for anything you know I think there's some people that maybe weren't and and I think it's easy to misconstrue intensity and expectations for you know bullying you know, I know when I was there, we were ready to step into the fires. No, no pun intended, everything, you know, everything concerned, um, you know, to, to do anything to make it happen. And, you know, I, I know I was mentally and emotionally prepared for that. And there are a lot of people that probably weren't. And going for three mission stars is, is not easy. And creating a kitchen culture that is demanding is not easy, especially when you're in the middle of nowhere, essentially, you know, you're taking people from all walks, shapes of life, and you need them to rally around this one 
standard. You know, it was intense. And, and, I, and I will not lie in that. I think it will slowly change. But as long as there's those people that don't mind it, and it's, um, it's weird because I've talked to a lot of people that worked at Meadowood, like since all this has happened. And my friend Jimmy was treated so poorly. I mean, everybody was. And he was like, those are the fondest memories of my career. And I'm like, you're a fucking psychopath. So I don't know. It's very weird. Yes, it was a very difficult place to work. The first year I worked there, every single day I drove up Meadowood Lane, I was nervous. And going into service, incredibly nervous. And somebody had told me um, when I was taking a Sumway exam, you know, you're nervous because you care. And that has always stuck with me. Yes, we were all incredibly nervous because we cared so much because we knew what went into every day's service, how much chef and the restaurant director put in. They were in their early 30s, you know, and, and just at the, at the top of their game, they achieved this amazing success in this restaurant. And you don't want to screw that up for them. So, you know, the level of expectation was that everybody who was hired there, you were able to achieve that level of success too. That was something that was expected. And if you're not willing to give 110% every single day, then you don't belong there. And you know, for some people that was tough to take because I think they wanna have a cheerleader of a boss. You know, you're doing a great job, awesome. No, that's the expectation. And uh, it was not for everybody. And the people who it was not for, they didn't last very long either because they quit or, you know, the team didn't embrace them. So, you know, they left uh, or, or got fired. It's definitely not for everybody. As someone who's worked in fine dining in the past, the experiences that folks are sharing about this restaurant square with what I know to be true about these kinds of restaurants. The way they're organized and the way in which dissent is quashed um, in the pursuit of making something beautiful in unison with other people. You know, there are like good and bad sides to it. That makes sense to me, but it's just hard for me. And maybe it's because I've never worked in a fine dining space like this. But the idea that someone could like come up and grab my shirt and scream at me for messing up some bone marrow dish or something. (laughs) And then I use that as inspiration. You know, I pat my head and charge back to my station and emulsify something with like renewed vigor or something. I I just don't see that happening. Then you couple that with, you know, there being a lack of this, like, hey, you did a good job, or just kind of like anything to really make you feel better or make you feel like you're on the right track. I don't know. It's hard for me to imagine being inspired to work in a space like that. It just feels kind of negative, right? I feel like that (laughs) would seep through in my work. Yeah, no, I mean, that makes sense. But I think it's important to remember or at least to hearken back to what you were saying earlier in the podcast, right, about how getting a Michelin star bestows material benefits to these restaurants. Mm. And the same applies to the people who work at these restaurants, the ones who are able to put worked at a Michelin starred restaurant on their resumes because then they can move on, they can access investors, they can access opportunities. It is, in essence, a dream job to work at a Michelin starred restaurant, especially one with three stars for people who want to live that lifestyle, who want to work in that sector of the food industry, that's how you do it. And there aren't, you know, as a matter of principle, there aren't that many 
peer restaurants like that in the country. Yeah. So if you decide to walk out of this one, who knows? Like, how do you know the three or four other ones that you're mm. able to go to are better? Yeah, that's a really good point. And the other thing that is really makes sense to me, even though it's unfortunate about the whole situation, is that we let geniuses get away with a lot in the name yeah. of genius. You would hope that in a room of 10 people, uh, if seven of them think this one person is a genius, maybe, you know, two probably don't. But it seems like in kitchens, like, it's more of a unanimous thinking, kind of like groupthink, that the person leading them is so forward thinking, is such a genius that they're unquestionable in the things that they do. Right. I mean, you wouldn't be there in the first place if you didn't believe it, right? Right. And... In so doing, I think certainly in culture at large, right, we allow this to happen over and over again. We just let people occupy that space and do really whatever they want. And we tolerate their idiosyncrasies because we value so much what they produce for us as a culture. And, you know, I think that's kind of it's very pertinent to the chef world, to the restaurant world. I'm saying the the meals that I've had at the restaurant at Meadowood were so incredible, so amazing. And I really had to think when I heard about all this stuff, what is the price of that? And what am I willing to accept as a collateral damage for something so wonderful? I don't know. As a note. Executive chef Christopher Costo did not respond to any of these allegations at the time of reporting. So with that said, here's what some former employees had to say about the restaurant at Meadowwood workplace culture, starting with former food runner Alexis Iconis. This is not the place to have training wheels, you know, and if you're not giving your best, then, you know, people would be upset. And sure, in every single restaurant I've worked at, there has been yelling. Yeah. Tempers get get heated at times because people care and and people are flawed. And unfortunately, it is something that happens in the restaurant world where it's more of a given that personalities are allowed to do what, what they want, you know, versus other industries where it's definitely not okay to yell. But you understand it's the, it's the stress level of you have diners out there who are paying $1,000 to eat your food. And here you have this food runner who dropped the canapé on the ground in the kitchen because he wasn't paying attention. So toxic, no. Stressful, yes. And, uh, you know, but if you made it and, sh- and showed that you were putting in the effort, doing your homework outside of work, showing up no matter what, then, you know, you kind of prove yourself and you're, you're part of the team and you'll get a lot out of it. There's some narcissism behind trying to get you know two or three stars like it's definitely about me but it can it can also be about the people that work for you because it's a little bit about them too they're working there for themselves i I think just a lot of chefs just get so caught up in like this like me 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 thing i mean it's worked so who's to say it's broken but i think it is well i mean christopher is very demanding for sure I, i mean i think everybody who held it held the standard dearly was probably their own worst critics and honestly i think at a restaurant like that you're looking for people who are going to critique themselves as hard as you are going to critique them you know i didn't want to mess up because i didn't want to mess up i didn't want to let that customer wait one second more to 
get their food or I didn't want to have to refire an expensive piece of fish or expensive piece of meat and have to throw in the garbage because I wasn't paying attention. Holding those things to myself and not wanting to upset the flow of service because you know when all things are humming it's a dance it's a peaceful dance it's relatively quiet everything's clicking and humming you don't want to be that cog in the wheel that you know sets everything off kilter and and out of sync you know those people who were not happy with their experience that's unfortunate because it was not easy to spend 12 hours a day away from your family in an, in an environment that's not warm and fuzzy, sure. But I have had so many doors open for me in the wine business. I have my winery now and, you know, it, it carries weight for years afterwards. You worked at Meadowood in the wine program or you were a chef at Meadowood. You will always have that. And then the connections you make with the people that you worked with and with chef himself, if he is on your side, you know, th those connections are worth way more than any of the negativity that might have gone along with it at certain times. We asked Ricky Odberg, the former fish cook, about how he felt when he heard the restaurant had burned down. You know, I'm sad that Chris Costell lost his restaurant because I know how hard he worked to get that place to there because I, I was there when they had two stars and I remember how, how hard everybody worked to get it there. Yeah, I mean, I, I also don't feel bad for him at all because I, I don't really think that he's a very kind person. So yeah, it's a very mixed feeling. I think a lot of people lost a lot, including him. But at the same time, I don't feel bad for him because I think he's kind of an asshole. And as for the future of Meadowood, here's what former sous chef Ben Nierenhausen had to say. I have no doubt that Meadowood's going to come back stronger, bigger, more reflective. It's too big at this point to just brush under the rug and say, yeah, we're done. Christopher is always looking, you know, on the horizon for, for the next thing. And, and I can guarantee you that he's already looking forward to, you know, how to create this even better in the future. So I think, I think a fair question is why, as a newsroom, if we do a story like this after a place burned down, not something that's specifically glowing, not something that's a takedown, but just an honest reflection of, how that business existed and what space it carved out for itself in the Bay Area. Why do that right now? Honestly, I, I think it's important when we do these stories, uh, especially you know during wildfire season, with all of the damage that happens up there. I think people are curious about you know the wineries that they love, the restaurants that are up there, and usually they're really expensive restaurants. And people are curious about how they're doing. So it's this you know kind of intersection of breaking news and culture reporting almost. And so when you have a place like this that sits at that spot, it's just really important to cover it because then you can branch out in so many directions about what it means, its impact, and you end up with a story like what we, <laughs> what we basically published. And I think from a critic's perspective, Soleil, it might be like, you know, a little bit more nuanced, I guess, but I'd, I'd love to hear like why, why telling this story is important from, from your perspective. Yeah, no, that's a good question because certainly I think there was a lot of discussion among the staff, right, over whether we should tell this story because, you know, we, we ended up writing, I think, three or four Meadowood stories, right? And <laughs> it, yeah. it was a lot. Yeah. And um, at first, of course, you want to acknowledge that people lost their jobs. Like, that's important. It's important to acknowledge that this was a place where 
culture was created and facilitated and made and perpetuated. And then at the same time, Michelin-starred restaurants aren't like Mount Olympus. You know, they're not these sacred grounds. They are places in real life. They are workplaces. And no matter what, when people want to tell us about their workplace, we are charged to listen because we serve the public and the public needs to know. And I think that that's part of of my like bigger kind of questions about restaurants and about the kinds of cultures that we that we are willing to put up with in order to make things that please us, if that makes sense. And I think there's a there's a question about just how how much are we willing to put up with? Who are we willing to throw under the bus essentially so that we can have a good time? And I think those those are all really pertinent concerns with not only the restaurant I'm at at Wood, because I think singling them out for that is quite fair. I think this is a constant across restaurants, across all genres and across all price points. I think it's a really common thing that happens and you really have to try to make sure that doesn't happen. But I think telling this story is a really important window into that kind of culture and how it can happen even at a place where art making is supposed to be the number one priority. So that's all we have for today's episode. Thanks to Janelle Bidker and Erica Carlos for contributing to reporting for this episode. You can read the whole article at sfchronicle.com spicy. And if you liked this episode, please give it a rating on Apple Podcasts. And remember to send us any questions or voice memos you may have about food, life, or anything else for our Dear Spicy advice segment at extraspicy at sfchronicle.com. Thanks for listening. Extra Spicy is part of the San Francisco Chronicle Podcast Network. Erica Carlos is the producer of the show. If you like the Extra Spicy podcast, subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can find me, Soleho, on Twitter at H-O-O-L-E-I-L. And me, Justin Phillips, at Just Mr. Phillips. You can support Extra Spicy and great journalism by signing up for a San Francisco Chronicle membership at sfchronicle.com slash pod. 